Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Hi, my name is Reed Schmidt. I'm here with Alex Cabrera. We're at his home in Sherwood. It's February 24th, 2021. Alex, thanks so much for having us here today. Uh, first question for you, and the most important one to get started. Uh, why wine? Why viticulture? <laughs> why wine? Um, I, I would say nothing is as romantic or emblematic as like, oh, I drank some Chateau Margaux or some Unico, and that made me an epiphany to go uh, go, th- go to the wine world. I just kind of started from school. Um, I was in the science majors in biochemistry, biophysics at OSU. I was not thinking about anything alcohol related other than absolute vodka, maybe, uh, in my pre-drinking uh, years. So um, why wine became like this long-winded kind of bit by bit, just kind of stepping stone. And I think the the backbone of that is science related because that's what I wanted to do in high school. That's what I wanted to do when I was little. Um, I wanted to be a doctor, wanted to be, um, you know, all that, but then I didn't like blood and guts. And so obviously I realized pretty quickly into anatomy um, at OSU that I didn't want to go that route. So then I went like the kind of the research route of sciences, uh, biochemistry and biophysics was my major for two and a half years at OSU, a four year school. Um, and then I kind of realized that that's really not a route that I kind of want to take. It's a little, potentially a little monotonous. Um, I didn't really see kind of the fruits of my labor with the cliche that that means. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just kind of went down the path of some other options at OSU. I think I was a pharmacy major for like a few weeks. Um, then I went to botany for a few weeks and that started to interest me on a few things. I ended up working for a virology lab in some botany department um, that deals with, at the time was really interesting concept. So they were heavily funded and so me as a, I don't know, a 19 or 20 year old working, doing like a work study job, getting paid what I thought was a great amount of money and being able to travel to UC Davis on a plane paid by people from OSU was, it was amazing. But what they were doing is they were trying to get, um, they were working on Pierce's disease. And these botanists, virologists, that probably never drank wine, were working on a way to get um, expression of a protein um, in the grapevine carried by agrobacterium, which is this little bacteria um, that causes galls, but it also spreads kind of like a, if you have a cold or a virus, right? And so in that lab, I was basically, what I was doing was growing little seedlings of grapevines um, and doing micro tissue propagation of grapevines and having a lot of fun with basically the a grapevine from a in vitro standpoint, so like in a laboratory standpoint. And I started to really dig a grapevine as a plant, as a thing, not really necessarily outside from a wine standpoint. And then that just slowly developed into, well, I, I'm, I'm kind of liking the fact that it's very sciencey, it's very complicated. Um, wine growing seems to be, started reading some literature 
This is not just growing grass seed. Sorry to all the grass seed growers out there that might see this years from now. Um, so I started kind of going towards the plant science route, grapevine route, uh, viticulture, horticulture. Um, that would have probably been like, gosh, getting, getting done with my sophomore year. That's my dog that's whining right now because he's not getting enough attention. Um, so that kind of prolonged me, uh, kind of pushed me towards horticulture, viticulture, right? Mm -hmm. And so by that time, beginning into junior year, I did a lot of work for this, kind of this botany lab, but I kind of want a little more, kind of want a, kind of a hands-on, you know, the opposite of in vitro, I think X, X whatever, outside. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so I ended up deciding to take a term off and go to Peru because I have background from Peru. I'm half Peruvian. Um, and we have a lot of uh, history in Peru and in some wine growing regions of Peru. So the Ica Valley, Valley of Ica, um, south of Lima, Peru. That's where a lot of wine grapes are grown, mostly for Pisco, which is a Peruvian brandy. It's not Chilean, it's Peruvian. Um, comes from Peru. It's made in many other countries at this point, but originated in Peru. And it uses vinifera grapes um, in an old, unadulterated standpoint, um, you know, no oak influence. No, no other influences other than the actual variety. And so that was like my first involvement in the fact that a grapevine, while it's so complicated from a scientific standpoint, it also makes a product, an end product, whether it be brandy, whether it be wine, that's also extremely complicated and nuanced. And, and so then it just started like opening doors into this, this route of potentially winemaking, fermentation sciences. So there I was in Peru for, I don't know, three months, working in this government-run station of viticulture slash um, agribusiness. Um, it was kind of interesting. Um, I, I did a little bit of a lot, not a lot, basically. Um, so it really wasn't that, um, I didn't come out of it knowing how to grow grapes or anything like that, but I got a lot of interesting experience. Um, I was tasked to get a lot of just data on the industry that was, I guess in the early 2000s, still kind of fledgling. If I rem remember going into a really nice grocery store in Peru, there might've been you know, 10 bottles of Pisco and three bot two bottles of, of Peruvian wine, mm -hmm. right? Um, and now, today, or at least last year, <laughs> in a grocery store in Peru, there was probably 40 bottles of Pisco and 20 bottles of, uh, of wine, right? So things really have moved out there. But at the time, in the early 2000s, maybe that had been mid-2000s, it was just kind of unknown. And I went around to a bunch of the wineries and farmers and just asked, what are you growing? Mm -hmm. How many acres? And I was tasked to do this because the, my boss at the time um, basically knew that he wasn't getting a lot of information because everybody kind of holds in, kind of somewhat secretive. But a guy from the U.S. kind of speaks Spanish, why not? Open book. And so I got a lot of information out from these people that normally maybe wouldn't talk to each other as competitors. Um, and so that was kind of interesting. But um, so that's, that's kind of, so now we're in my junior year of high school, of, of, of OSU. Um, came back, kind of had, maybe the light bulb really kind of came on then, the science part of grape growing, the actual kind of like end product, um, whether it be brandy, wine, was kind of all interesting to me. 
Um, you know, we do have, my family has had some land with some Pisco grapes. Um, and at the time, it was not interesting to me, but now it's starting to become interesting. So taking all that back, coming back to the United States, went to my biochemistry, biophysics advisor and said, well, I'm going to definitely make my change and I'm going to go to horticulture. And then they said, great, you can have a minor in biology and chemistry now, right now. So I definitely went um, and stopped doing chemistry, biology, all that stuff, and started to hit hard viticulture, fermentation sciences, horticulture. And the final, I guess, layer of my like school foundation at OSU primarily um, was, okay, I wanted to maybe make brandy, maybe be a, a, a vintner, but that, that was kind of my route. And then I ended up meeting Evan Bellinger, who you'll probably run into at some point. Um, he's a fellow compatriot of ours at Results Partners. And I met him in some microbiology class and we were chatting and he was already, already kind of in the track of viticulture, horticulture, farming. And we were chatting, we were in like a little wine club at the time. And he made the mention that, you know, all you ever do when you're winemaking is just cleaning. That's all you're doing for about 95% of the time. And then it's really fun for about five or 10% of the time. And so I took some of his advice, whether good or, or bad, and just pivoted just ever so slightly to more viticulture and horticulture, which in hindsight, that's exactly what I prefer. And obviously um, the last 10, 15 years has been um, strictly farming viticulture. Mm -hmm. And I like it and I wouldn't have done it any differently because I feel like from my science background, I really like when things are relatively black and white or they are quantifiable. And if I can do a job and provide grapes that are you know, they don't have disease. Um, they, they're in balance. They're not overly stressed, overly vigorous. Um, the requests and quality needs from a winemaker has been done mm -hmm. and provided, whether it's leaf exposure or the amount of crop. Those are easy. Yes or no, we did it. Mm -hmm. And whether to me on the wine side, there's a lot of subjectivity in that. And I could make the best wine. I could put my heart and soul into it. And if it just doesn't work well for some wine critic or some little panel here, or it's not the right style because the powers that be at the winery XYZ is going this route, then I'm gonna feel crushed, or I could feel crushed. So power be to the winemakers that have very thick skins and, um, and an exuberant amount of confidence, maybe, is, is what they need. Um, so I prefer the easier route of just, you know, yes, we farmed the way you wanted it or the way it should be farmed, um, and, and that's kind of the, kind of the end result, it's obvious. So that was kind of the final, you know, the final route. Senior year, um, just about finishing up, realized I need to have an internship with actual kind of hands-on experience. Um, a lot of it's been theoretical, technically, and that's kind of the problem in some universities in general is you don't have a lot of hands-on experience. And I know that I think in Fresno and in other places, Washington State, they're doing it differently. I think in OSU now, they've been doing it differently. Speaking of that, I think maybe I was the second graduate out of the viticultural option. Uh, I think Evan might have been the first, Travis Cook like the third, or maybe we were tied. So not to, I mean, it was a fledgling program at the time, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so I'm sure it's great now. Go Beavers. Um, 
So anyways, yeah, senior year, um, needing some you know, vocational experience, but also wanting to kind of get a little bit into it from, a, from my head standpoint. Um, I was in Pinot land in Corvallis, North Willamette Valley. The, the little bits of, of experience I've had going and thinning something for the fermentation science guys or going to you know, work on a little bit of a crush at, at the OSU um, lab, those were all Pinot related, right? But I kind of wanted something different because I like different. Um, all the, the varieties from either making wine or brandy in Peru are totally different. Obviously, it's very hot, arid, and sometimes humid climate down there. So what kind of piqued my interest were some of those same cultivars or varieties in Peru, which is like Tanat, Malbec, Tempranillo, um, you know, to name a bunch more. And I don't know if I found it, I don't think I'm that smart. I think someone mentioned to me that there's this place in Oregon, of all places, that's doing um, different varieties, interesting things, not just Pinot Noir, and not, not at all Pinot Noir. And it's Abacella, and that's kind of a Spanish kind of theme. And well, I'm, you know, half Peruvian, Spanish. That might make sense. Great. And so I end up. I don't even know how I got an internship. Maybe Earl Jones could probably tell this better. But uh, I think I might have just called up and basically kind of extolled how cool I thought this endeavor was that he was doing. And can I work for pennies on the dollar for you? And he said yes. I don't know exactly how he said it, but I recall some form of yes. And I ended up working for him um, for the summer. Um, it was kind of a longer period because I ended up finishing school a little bit early and it just was kind of a good period. I think I started kind of in the growing season, like in April. Because yeah, I graduated I think in after winter term maybe. Something like that. Anyways, so that was great, you know. Graduated, um, um, just about to graduate. I'll get the diploma like in the summer. Um, had a really high GPA, I think magna cum laude, thinking I was going to just rule the world being a vineyard manager. Obviously I started um, just as an intern. And it was a lot of boots on the ground, a lot of intense, basically salt of the earth work to kind of get a foundation, you know, obviously pruning the vines, um, even weed eating doing all sorts of things. Um, but at the same time, which I really appreciate Earl and I, a lot of my success in my career, I, I put on him as having provided this for me, is he really took the time, he and then others at Avicella took the time to really kind of explain a lot of the viticulture nuances and a lot of what they do. And they had basically almost technically a research vineyard, yet it was designed to make money and produce great Iberic varietals, but at the same time, a lot of time and effort and money was spent on a bunch of new, different trials, um, way to manage whatever vineyard task, and obviously um, on the winery side, you know, changing some sensory, um, you know, details or whatever. So that was great. That was my internship. Loved it. I, after the internship, I, I know there wasn't a job opening because it's just a small winery vineyard at the time, but I think I bathed or did whatever I needed to do to just continue working there because I really was really enamored with um, what they were doing against the grain, you know, non, you know, 
um, kind of way of farming mm-hmm. down there. And so he hired me. Yay. Left school. Um, again, thinking I was going to really control the world. Um, and I think what I did for like two weeks was weed eat because um, they, did a, they didn't get too good of a set on their pre-emergent, which is designed to kind of prevent weeds from emerging. And so we had a bunch of um, weeds like Queen Anne's Lace, Wild Carrot, stuff like that. And so I remember just weed eating at a very low hour rate. Someone that had, you know, I don't know, magna cum laude <laughs> honors, um, thought he knew his shit. Um, but in the end, that was exactly what I needed because, again, I need to, in this industry, you have to kind of come from the ground up. Mm-hmm. And maybe to get on the soapbox, I don't think that that's happening as much as it, it, as it used to happen. Um, I think it was good that, you know, I got thumped around a bit um, right out of school, um, thinking what I know um, to kind of remind me that I need a very basic foundation in order to work with crews, in order to work with winemakers, in order to work with whomever, and know exactly what I'm talking about because I've done it. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it's ran the leaf puller or pruned those grapevines or weedy did those rows upon rows on a hillside because of poor weed management, which that made me want to make sure weed management is on, on, um, on tap. So, um, so that started like my career, my professional career, um, as an assistant vineyard manager working for Earl Jones at Avicella. Um, that started in 2007 and let's see, that went until 2011. Hey Jackson. Um, and throughout all those wonderful years working there, working my butt off, um, and and really kind of understanding the details of grape growing, at least from a Southern Oregon standpoint, Tempranillo, Iberic bridal standpoint, um, started to kind of maybe think about maybe some changes. And that was primarily brought on, or the impetus really, because I was quite happy, um, was I recently um, got married, and that's um, a very important facet of my life. And my wife is from Peru. And um, she's from Lima, the capital city, which um, areas of portions of the capital city are very cosmopolitan. And she was studying um, fashion design, which when after we got married and she came to this country um, in 2010, 2010, um, realized that Southern Oregon, Roseburg, Winston area is not the best location to grow your apparel or high fashion design, right? So that was something that um, was, was going to maybe make a change at some point, right? And, and it was kind of a known thing that nobody talked about maybe, right? Um, and at some point, what kind of was kind of a movement um, for how I left Avicella was at the same time, this position at Results Partners kind of opened up and I was approached by um, you know some of the old guard at Results Partners um, for something new and up in the Portland metro area I mean McMinnville metro area um, close enough um, we decided that as a family you know as a starting to be a family mm-hmm. that this is the better um, route for me 
So then we went up, um, said our goodbyes, although not a final goodbye, um, to Abacella and to warm climate, viticulture, to irrigating, to Tempranillos, Albarinos, Grenaches, wonderful Grenache, great Grenache Rosé, if you want to have some Rosé, Grenache Rosé. Um, went up to Pinot Land, right? Mm -hmm. Something that I never really did, didn't really talk about, um, in, uh, unless I was at OSU, and right into the, to the Pinot Land, and, and working with Results Partners, and that happened in 2012, and obviously I've been at Results Partners since, so a few things have gone well. Um, one, I really like Pinot Noir now. Um, <laughs> after drinking my fair share of pretty tannic, intense um, um, wines, whether they're Bordeaux-based or Spanish-based, um, I realized how wonderful Pinot is for just any time of day, any day of the week, with any food group. It's such a, maybe not chameleon, but it's a very, it's a very food, day, night friendly wine. It's a very interesting wine. Um, and so that was helpful, right? Um, I didn't feel like I needed those big brawny reds anymore, although where I was, made some wonderful whites. Um, and so, yeah, th that, that really helped maintain this, right? And then the second thing, obviously not the second thing, but working at Results Partners, working in the Willamette Valley, it was not as I assumed it would be maybe a little monotonous in that I was coming from a, a location that had, holy crap, maybe seven clones of Tempranillo. Um, how many varieties do we have? Like 10? No, more than that. Maybe we had 20. We had Portuguese, port varietals and all that stuff. Different rootstocks, crazy blocks here, two rows here, two rows there. And coming to basically kind of the Willamette Valley, mostly Pinot, mostly cane pruning, um, mostly dry farmed thinking like, okay, well, this is kind of going to be a little, um, dare I say, cookie cutter or mm -hmm. kind of just more kind of the status quo. And quickly I figured out that that's not the case. One, just in general in the valley, there's so much complexity in the soils and in what people are doing, um, vine spacing and, and how they're just basically growing grapes. And then secondarily, or secondly, results partners who manages so many different sites, four acres here, 150 acres there, mm -hmm. and so many different philosophies, um, organic, biodynamic. Um, I think in 2012, when I showed up, they were still farming about 10% of their acreage organic before it was really, really cool. So it was, that complexity like really helped, I think kind of really give a lot of uh, enthusiasm and, and passion to continue on my, my grape growing. Um, career. And so yeah, been here since. Um, great wines, um, really complicated, complex career path here with Results Partners and a great team. You know, um, I got to plug that because it's a really great team. Um, we've really had the same senior management team for since I've been there and we've only added to the senior management team, um, which says a lot. And um, so even though we're a, a large company, um, there's a lot of compartmentalization and there's a lot of uh, basically support from all different channels that makes us really allowed to get really deep, whether it's with viticulture, with the viticultural team, or basically be able to develop 200 acres like that because we have the manpower, we have the equipment power and the wherewithal to do all that. So that to me is like, wow, you can get really kind of nerdy, obviously on some aspects, especially when there's clients that are really interested and they want to push the envelope, 
or, or maybe they need to adapt to something differently. But at the same time, there's a lot of nice meat and potatoes farming, which I also like. And I think that some people sometimes forget that um, we need to remember the basics, right? Um, and so that's kind of here now. And now it's 2021. Thank God we're in 2021 and not 2020. Although with that ice storm we had a week ago, I don't know. Maybe we should just, uh, just continue looking forward. And so that's kind of like the career path, right? From start to finish. So why wine? Man, 45 minutes later or whatever. Um, nothing specific, just a bunch, of, a bunch of events, right? So there you go. So tell me about, you had a good amount of experience in Southern Oregon wine and in non-Pinot, non-Willamette Valley. Tell me about the, the differences between uh, grape growing farming in Southern Oregon and the wine industry in Southern Oregon and what you, what you come into. What, what are the biggest differences between the northern part of the state and southern part of the state? <laughs> uh, without getting political <laughs> between the two <laughs> locations, um, and I joke, this, it's not that intense. Um, it's, they're significantly different farming, right? I mean, going down I-5 and you're amongst Doug first, Doug first, Doug first, Doug first, and then you pop out into basically the Umqua, and it's like, whoa, oak, 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 madrone, a few pines, a few firs. So it's a significant difference. And uh, the people that are, that are tapping into that and farming it differently, dry, uh, dry farming is tough. I think a few people do it, but that's a very tough scenario. Mm -hmm. But the guys that have irrigation um, and, and do it well, um, just because you have water doesn't mean you know how to farm and, and utilize it, um, are doing good things. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of focus on that. Um, at the time when I was there, I think we might have had one day where it was kind of hazy. I mean, I didn't really recall, and, and this was in the Umpqua Valley, right? Which is obviously different than, you know, Ashland, Medford. I didn't really get the, you know, oh my gosh, you know, there's fires here. This is a difficult thing. What are we gonna do? Um, so I can't really speak to that a whole lot. But like from a farming standpoint, it's kind of live or die by water. You know how we irrigated. We were very technical at Apicella, doing a lot of um, deficit irrigation and, and, and ways to kind of change the morphology of a of a cluster, depending on when you irrigate and what kind of stress levels you want to do for that grape cluster. That I think is really interesting. Um, I miss that a bit up here um, because a lot of the Pinot Noir are small berries, anyways, and we don't really need to shrink one of them um, like we do. You know, a Tempranillo that might be as big as my thumb. So, um, so yeah, um, and you know, I think f from a, from an industry standpoint, it's, I don't have an answer to this where, is it a good thing that there's so many varieties and Grenache is awesome and Tempranillo is really yummy and you know, they make a really good Mavedre. I, you know, I, I don't know if that's the route or if they should, you know, put their flag on something, mm -hmm. you know, I, I can't speak for that. I, I think, you know, I don't know, in hindsight, we'll, we'll know at some point. Um, probably there needs to be maybe a little bit of some, some focus maybe in that because yeah, I mean, Mavedre maybe was a, a wrong, um, poor example, but maybe coming from tons of different varietals and wine styles to maybe a few more, several might, um, might improve um, branding down there um, but at the same time, I understand that there's a lot of growers out there that, um, that farm Pinot um, because at the time, you know, it, 
the fruit sets a little bit better down in Southern Oregon, a um, little bit better climate as far as heat units. And so that's a, that's very helpful some, to some Willamette Valley growers or winemakers that are growing, um, you know, Oregon labeled uh, Pinot that want to have a stronger backbone or a little more color or what have you. And so it's kind of like, yes, maybe a flagship, call it Tempranillo, call it Grenache, call it, um, you know, Syrah. But at the same time, there's a lot of Pinot out there um, that helps the overall Oregon brand. And we don't want to deter Oregon as a state because we're trying to wave a little flag here in this corner of the vineyard of the, of the state or in that corner of the state. So kind of complicated, um, kind of an ambiguous answer, but don't really have a, a major say on, on that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what about the transition for you from working at a single site uh, with, with the varietals you're working with, but, but the same site every day to, to transitioning to a place where you're working a lot of different sites, a lot of different elevating a lot of different soils, a lot of different climate types. Uh, what was the transition like for you to learn all those different new sites? So it, it definitely helped me a lot because normally when, when we think about, okay, someone's coming from an estate scenario, you know, that's relatively kind of, it's every vintage is relative, especially if it's an established vineyard, you kind of just get in your ways and you probably dive deep and get into kind of some, some details because it's relatively, Stationary, right? Um, there was enough going on down south, enough complexity, enough grafting every other year to where coming up north to, to Results Partners to where there's all this kind of complexity, I felt like I could, I could, I could crawl. I didn't have to just sit in my little stroller. Um, I, don't, I couldn't start running or walking, but I could crawl relatively well. So that, that transition was, was, was helpful. Um, like I said, with the team, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, you know, it's somewhere in between a, a hierarchy and a socialist kind of scenario, right? I mean, it's a very team-oriented um, system at Results Partners where, you know, everybody has strengths and weaknesses, and those strengths um, help those that are weaker and vice versa. So I had not the strongest background in development because we only developed maybe nine acres where I came from. Um, never really been on an excavator or a dozer, and so obviously we have a very strong um, development team, a very strong development manager, and so things like that, as I'm working with clients or whatever, I can always know that I've got that, that kind of support, so um, whether it's viticulture, whatever. So that makes us kind of, you know, there's some idiom with the sum of the parts or whatever, but that's kind of what we have, I think, so, mm -hmm. yeah. For you, tell me about your initial role at Results Partners. What were you hired for first, if you remember? And, and what, how has it changed since you've been there? I was hired with the title of Operations Manager. Um, and that title has been basically continuing on. I think I have a director uh, in front of that, but that really doesn't mean anything. And my dog doesn't care either about titles. Um, I basically showed up um, to fill part of the part of the team part of the senior team um to maintain clients to work with clients to find new clients um to obviously at the same time make operations run and run smoothly um, run efficiently mm -hmm. um, as we get bigger make sure that we're not there's not we're not getting clunky and we're not losing efficiencies here or there just through through operational creep mm -hmm. so that's kind of i mean it's kind of Kind of a little bit of everything, not really a specialist. Um, although I think I have a pretty strong background in some of the sciences, so some, some, of, the, some of the pesticide at the time in, in the early years, 
um, I was kind of more involved in and um, I happened to speak Spanish. Um, so that was important, obviously. All the senior managers also speak Spanish, but um, I speak it as well. So, um, <laughs> and so that was good to kind of basically working with the crews and I see my wife staring at me right now <laughs> out of her Zoom meeting. Um, so that, that was kind of important because at the time, we were using third-party farm labor contractors, right? And, and many people do. Um, it's, you know, our, 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 our population of workers, um, whether they're migrant, whether they're, they're, they live here, whether they're temporary, whatever, a lot of them are Latin-based. And so um, being able to speak the language and not have any loss of translation in, let's do this, let's do this, don't go this high, pull this many leaves, needs to be crystal clear. Mm -hmm. And so that was good and that was helpful. And at the time, we didn't even think about this, but a few years later, we were really kind of transitioning towards, let's do this internally. Um, you know, yes, we can hire from FLCs and there are some good ones out there. There are some not good ones out there. And there's probably more not good ones out there. And I mean that not from a standpoint of just quality of work, but just um, quality for the worker mm -hmm. and worker rights, worker pay worker knowledge of what they're doing, worker safety, worker protection standard. We can really get into that, which I won't. Um, and so by us basically internalizing our labor, which we started that in 2015, which seemed like an earth shattering, like, you know, the Berlin Wall is falling. And then now, I don't know, six years later, it just seems like, why didn't we do it sooner? <laughs> but that took time and that took people that um, obviously can speak the language and can kind of understand a little bit of of, of how, to, how to make this all work. And so that was kind of, you know, I think, a, I think I put a key part in, and that's helpful to the bottom line also. I mean, let's be honest, it's a business, and so that works very well when we take out a middleman. Same thing when we're developing vineyards. We don't need to get a third party in to, um, to excavate out um, some rocks and to, um, to tip over some, some ugly um, fir trees that are in the way of some uh, some planting and maintain some and beautify some oak trees. We do that ourselves. We have our own excavator, our own dozer, and so same thing with labor. Why have a third party? And so that's it. Just kind of made sense from us. <laughs> um, and you know, we ended up kind of started to cultivate this culture that yeah, results partners. Um, we have you know we have job opportunities. Um, we pay market rates. Um, we train you. Um, safety is a focus. I mean, the amount of trainings that we've done where people have been like, wow, I never knew that. Wow, so you guys make us not go into a vineyard after 24 hours because the label says so? Not just, oh, that's great. So, so the amount of like, I guess, trying to, trying to, it's not necessarily teach because they're not, I mean, they understand it. They, um, a lot of migrant workers, but it's just been really good to get to get the support back and to um, and to kind of I think cultivate kind of a new culture-ish, you know. So that kind of is an aside right now, but so that's kind of you know what was helpful uh, as I was here at Results Partners and kind of making this all work. And now we're like I don't know since the last two or three years, 99% internal labor. I mean we might ask a helping hand once in a while, but, and you know, that's a lot of 
that's a lot of people. Mm -hmm. That's that's makes for a very stressful admin team <laughs> dealing with paychecks and uh, payroll and yada yada. But in the end, it works out well, and um, I think it helps. And I hope a lot of um, other entities are, would do the same. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think that there's there's several out there that are not treating I think um, you know labor appropriately. Mm -hmm. So with your role at RP, are you mostly in vineyards? Are you mostly in the office? Are you mostly in charge of looking at people? Like, where's your, what's your day-to-day, week-to-week look I like? I think it's always involving. I think, you know, as, as we grow, you know, you could say that there's more time um, where it's, gosh, it's been several days since I've really been um, kissing a vine or, <laughs> or anything like that. And so, uh, you know, it's just kind of evolved. Um, but... We're still quite hands-on as far as senior managers are concerned. Mm -hmm. um, we need to be um, to, to basically maintain that we all know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, the, the vineyard industry, and we've talked about this maybe later, is, is always adapting. It has to adapt, especially in light of challenges that we've got, not COVID-related, just other challenges. And so just because I'm the you know, if, if, if someone's the greatest vineyard manager in the world today, they're probably not going to be five years from now if they just rest on their laurels and, and just kind of, I don't know, go to conferences and get on boards and, uh, and yada yada. And so, you know, while, while we have a lot of business management, which sometimes that can be trying and, and complicated and HR management, which is fun, um, we, we need to be involved um, and we have to be especially with new, um, new challenges. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So let's talk about, uh, client relations a little bit. I'm, I'm curious, uh, you talked about yeah. kind of part of your role being finding, maintaining, developing relationships with clients. Uh, obviously you, ha you work with a lot of different growers, a lot of different sizes. Tell me about those relationships. W what are you looking for when you're, when you, when, when someone comes to RP with, with a project or with a, with a potential to hire you? What, what is you looking for on the other side? What, 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 what do you offer? What can you not do? What do you, what do you, what do you not look for? Yeah, so what we don't look for, not, we, we often say, and I think that maybe sounds cliche, but we often say, yes, but. So, for example, um, someone wants to plant, um, I don't know, um, a lot of acres, um, but they, they want to go organic from the start and they don't want to use any pesticides, although it's really nice to be able to establish a grapevine with more tools in your tool belt. Um, because the last thing you want is a, is a vineyard that is very outcompeted by, I don't know, Mother Nature or other, um, uh, other weeds. Because you're putting a, 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 uh, a monoculture inside an environment that is not used to that. So you kind of need to help it. Nevertheless, um, we say yes, but the costs are going to be more. Um, you know, we're going to have potentially um, one more year towards full production because it's going to be a slower process. Or if there's a grower, if there's a client that says, you know, I want five acres of Dolcetto because my family's from Italy and I just want it. Yeah, we'll do some Pinot, some Chardonnay. I want Dolcetto. And we'll say yes, but is it internal production? Are you going to make that yourself? Because if it's not, if you're trying to sell it, it might, you know, hurt your revenues and then that might you know, come to us as far as lower farming costs, which is mm -hmm. tough to do these days. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, we, for, for clients, it's, it's just a lot about of kind of starting with communication, understanding uh, what it is they want, 
and um, what are their goals, which that's always tough because like a lot of people might have goals without really understanding the, the business or understanding the costs associated or the lead time between that plant that you know a year ago when you ordered that plant to then you plant it and then several years later you know you've got a crop and you gotta make the wine and you gotta put it in barrel and then you gotta put it in, um, in bottle and age it da 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 and if that's your route if you're trying to sell the grapes it might be a little bit simpler um, but there's a lot of knowledge that you learn like on the way and so we just try to be I think the most important thing is advocates to our clients um, and our clients are wineries they are people that live out of state, out of country, um, people that live on site, people that that's their slow retirement, um, all, all, you know, um, different um, types of people, different philosophies. Yeah, organic, biodynamic, conventional, that's easy. But then there's also the, you know, um, low input. There's the no-till. There's, I mean, name it, name the new cool thing. Um, you can you can argue the coolness factor or, or the the common sense factor but that's aside it's what do you want to do how do we get there and what are the realities in that if it's great you want to do this ABC scenario just understand that this is the plan and and you might not get a revenue out of that if you're trying for some interesting certification that somewhere in Iceland provides you Maybe that doesn't translate into a bottle price increase or a higher cost per ton, but that's what you want to do. And we're on the same page. We'll go for that. And so I think that like RP especially, we're very flexible. It makes it a hell of a, of a time managing, right? Because it's not like a cookie cutter, well, this is what we do, easy peasy. Um, but in light of kind of headaches and you know, long days and everything, um, you know, we can really see success in all this. So, yeah, I mean, being flexible, adaptive, and understanding goals with what's like the end result and the cause, yeah. So, yeah, fun stuff. Have you found, have you noticed any sort of major changes amongst, amongst your clients? Are they, are they asking for more? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> different or, or more complicated? Has, has, have their demands gotten more specific? What, 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 how have they kind of evolved for you? I mean, it really depends on the client, but I think in general, um, more in the sense that, so, um, farming costs, labor costs have really gone up in the last, just name a time period, right? 2005, 2010, you know, 2000, whatever. They've gone up and they're going to go up. And then we've got the minimum wage that goes up, which obviously we're nowhere near minimum wage, but there's the creep and people can really talk about how far that minimum wage creep goes up. So farming costs are getting more expensive. Um, and aside from that, um, you've got kind of an industry where at the, a while ago, you know, they were maybe smaller vineyards on steep hillsides, kind of undulating terrain and that made costs, or that made farming costs kind of complicated, kind of cumbersome. Um, yeah, where was I going with this, basically? Um, what, what, what clients and owners are asking? Thank you, yeah. thank you. Just this more just <laughs> got more. me blurry, yeah. And so more in the standpoint of, yeah, trying to kind of maintain farming costs as much as you can, but at the same time, um, there, there's, 
there's kind of a, a route of wanting to be different, right? Because at, at the same time, they're still as complicated as the soils are, as interesting as the topography is, and your philosophy, your story, deep down it's all, well, maybe not all, but it's mostly Pinot Noir, right? In the Willamette Valley, uh, or Chardonnay, whatever. And so how can they kind of break out, maybe, for whatever reason? And so that's something that we're getting more of, whether that's from a state, large estate operations that, that have different, kind of a different pivot that they're trying to do. And, um, you know, we can be, we can provide information, um, but we have to be supportive. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, we just have to kind of give kind of the, the cost benefits or the, maybe the effects that this will have. Um, but we definitely have to be supportive. And aside from the moors, um, kind of the, the other bandwidth maybe is also just like efficiency with a capital E, which is very hard to do here. And it's tough when someone you know, sees an article or sees a video by some super fancy implement in California that's got, does 10 things and it brushes your teeth and does everything. Um, and we want to just, yeah, let's, let's do that here in this 15.5 acre vineyard on a hillside with several different blocks with kind of an old trellis system Mm, you know, that's also wet from about, I don't know, mid-October until mid-May. So that's kind of tough. And, and we like being efficient. I think that just runs things a lot smoother. We're able to do more with less people, less operators, less supervisors. But at the same time, it's not just, uh, well, what they do over there, let's just do up here, right? Now, they're slowly changing some, like, as far as, like, the future of of the farming industry. And I can't really speak to the wine side, but farming, you know, I would say maybe 10, 15 years ago, it had to be like on a hillside. It had to be, you know, complicated and undulating. And that was just the only way. Now there's, okay, it's a gentle rolling hill. Oh, there's some like open land that used to be maybe, um, you know, fescue or something up still, you know, above any frost um, risk zones. Wow. That's something that's interesting. And what, you know what? That can make really good wine all of a sudden, they realize. Because it's in the Van Duzer corridor and it's getting a lot of wind and thicker skins and whatnot. So that's, that's when that happens, when the, the design lends itself to become more efficient, super. Let's do it. Let's multi-row farm. Um, let's do multiple row spraying. Let's do a multi-task farming where we're mowing at the same time we're in-row cultivating. But you need to have kind of the foundation to do all that. And so sometimes we get clients that want to do all that, but they are kind of in a scenario where they just can't. And so that's a tough spot to be in with, you know, and it's not really a subset of a vineyard size or a vineyard location, but there's just some that are just, it's really, it's in between like that, that, that ability to kind of adapt. Um, and so, yeah, there's gonna be, I don't know, there's going to be changes afoot because either, either they're going to have to go really vertical, and that means maybe bye-bye to results partners or bye-bye to selling fruit and maybe making their own fruit, I mean, making their own um, wine <laughs> amongst the hundreds of others um, and trying to get kind of a, a better return on that or, I don't know, adapt heavily. And so that's, that's kind of where I see as like it's kind of going to be a challenge. Um, those that that kind of were married to some confines of the site. Uh, yeah, and I don't really have an answer to that. I mean, but our client would want 
an answer, or at least a professional opinion. And so that's why we, coming back to like RP, we're not just sitting on our hands thinking, yeah, we, you know, we farm a lot, we're really successful, um, great. We need to be thinking about those guys at the same time that we work with maybe a 90 acre um, new development that's made to be very efficient. We need to think about, well, okay, um, if we replace the trellis at a high cost, we can do this and that's gonna save money X amount a year for the, the rest of the life of the vineyard, how much life of the vineyard is left, well, let's say maybe 40 more years, this is starting to pan out. Or, you know, hey, you know, um, on the side of just merging and acquisitions, it, so you're trying to sell your vineyard. You know, there, we, we, there might be some entities that are looking for vineyards, maybe some estate productions that, although a vineyard is small here and small here and small here, but maybe this estate vineyard needs some, some control of their fruit source, and so they want to purchase some small vineyards. So you get more efficiencies through maybe same equipment that's, that's moved around, or the ability to have the capital to make changes like um, grafting over Pinot Gris to maybe Pinot Noir. Um, so, so that's the things that kind of we can help kind of bridge um, to maybe some of those clients that are in that kind of feel like in there an island. Maybe. Mm -hmm. so. But yeah, changes, you know, the future is going to be <laughs> different, <laughs> obviously, yeah. Yeah. Well, we're, while we're talking about that, obviously labor mechanization, uh, but both those are big issues in, in your field. Tell me what the changes you've seen in terms of, of, of labor in the state and in terms of mechanization in the industry and, and what you kind of see for the future of both those things. Yeah, so like I mentioned, it's, it's, it's increasing. Labor costs are increasing um, just in general, um, which, you know, is a good thing and a bad thing because, um, you know, maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, whatever years ago, um, probably labor was taken advantage of, um, not by all, but maybe by, by just the, the, the general kind of mm -hmm. sense. And so with that, um, with more opportunities to go to school, more opportunities of whatever, there's been a smaller labor pool. And that's just, I don't think it's going to get better. And so then you start paying more of a premium for labor or you can mechanize. Um, mechanization, there's a lot of opportunities, but just as I was saying, there's a lot of vineyards that just can, no matter how incredibly um, fruitful the mechanization is, if it doesn't fit, if it's a square and a round hole or whatever, it just is not going to work, mm -hmm. right? There, there might be at some point, but the, but the capital intensive nature and kind of making that happen, it's not going to work for a retiree with a 10-acre vineyard. It might only be if it's part of a larger mm -hmm. estate model. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, the beauty about Oregon, I think, with the boutique kind of atmosphere and, and small batches and kind of starting out um, is, is needing to change. And some of those original sites like that, um, or even wine style, might have to change too. I mean, I understand, you know, from a consumer standpoint, um, you know, where wine is and in certain generations that are even younger than me and <laughs> and so they've got challenges on that front obviously mm -hmm. big challenges and so on ours from a farming standpoint we can only do so much with efficiency um and yeah i don't know hopefully there's a little bit of inflation <laughs> on great prices and uh, to then match some of the inflationary nature of of materials or labor i i wonder about you know, as, as labor starts to move 
I don't know um, what's going to happen as far as you know the next step. I know in California, labor is significantly different, more expensive. There's ag overtime. There's a lot of things that are happening. And so I don't know what's happening here. I'm not going to get into that or get political or anything like that. But we should learn from our neighbors at least and at least make, have a concerted effort to, to as an industry, um, to kind of go a certain route that is kind of good for everybody and good for the industry as a whole, rather than just either dig in our heels mm -hmm. and get slapped with something or just get completely um, caught by surprise, right? Mm -hmm. So, because um, it has been helpful to see California and Oregon is not California, California is not Oregon, but at the same time, a lot of the things that were maybe some challenges 10 years ago for them or 20 years ago, um, maybe we're starting to see, you know? Um, so, yeah, then that's kind of a, a bigger thing, uh, maybe more of a closed-in session on how an industry is going to figure that out, <clears throat> um, whether it's, you know, developing vineyard land, um, urban growth boundaries, labor, all that stuff. Seems like interesting challenges. Not existential, but just, <laughs> you know, challenges. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So obviously you've, you've seen your share of vineyards now. I'm, I'm curious, uh, when you're looking at an ex existing vineyard or looking at a, particular, a pot of land that might be a vineyard, what are you looking for? What, how do you judge uh, a vineyard that, that you're going to be working with or a site that you might be working with? Yeah. Uh, what are you looking for and, and what are your kind of biggest sort of concerns slash um, attractions? Yeah, and a funny story about that. So like, I think another like light bulb in my head for going toward the farming of, of being a vineyard farmer grape growing was I started to, when I drove, driving a lot, I started to look at the landscape and be like, oh, that place, south facing slope, interesting, warm climate variety, or ooh, that little, little north um, knoll could be, and this was kind of in the southern Oregon area, oh, that might be some cool climate that we can put down here. And so anyways, I, that was like turning me to my farming um, away from fermentation sciences, I think heavily was when I just started looking at land as a way to to produce grapes. So, anyways, aside from that, but yeah. So, what am I looking for specifically? I mean, you know, for, for us, a lot of times um, we are knocked. You know, we're you know we're called upon, and the land's already there, right? And so that's kind of interesting because maybe there's some challenges with that land per se. And, you know, we, how do we make this the best side it can be for the client, for the wine style, for the, for the grapes? So that's like one route. Um, if we had our brothers, I mean, what kind of land we would want, what kind of things we'd be looking for? <clears throat> it's so dependent because if you want to grow kind of meat and potatoes, um, Pinot Noir, because you're a large client or you're... I don't know, the Harvard Fund, and you want a couple hundred acres somewhere, those requirements or that kind of what you need for land is significantly different than if you are from New York and you have your heart set on a beautiful Oregon landscape um, with some acreage to make fine Pinot Noir. Both can be fine Pinot Noir, but I would say significantly different mm -hmm. topography. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. kind of a cop out to your question. Um, it, it obviously needs to, you know, it needs to work for the future. And I think that's maybe the most important thing um, when we look at land and if we're given the opportunity to like, as an interested client, 
let's find some land available. We need to look at how can, whatever we do now, 20 years from now, or Alex, what kind of dumb idea was that, right? So whatever we do now, it needs to be able to be, I don't know, adaptable, right? Mm -hmm. um, we need to be able to have land that maybe is kind of like the Goldilocks thing, maybe not like insanely steep on a, on a, on a south-facing hillside, because who knows, 20 years from now, that might be too darn hot for some, maybe some, some, some nice Pinot, you know, food-friendly Pinot. Um, same thing, you know, with, uh, um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, you could just get kind of wrapped up into it. So, yeah, it um, really depends. Mm -hmm. Some more question for you about, about the various sub-AVAs in Oregon. Obviously, you've seen, you've seen many of the AVAs in Willamette, Willamette Valley. I probably worked with most of them. Uh, tell me about the sort of adaptations you need to, to go from AVA to AVA and, and what, what the kind of unique challenges or, or features are for some of them. Well, mm, I mean, it, Southern Oregon to, uh, I mean, the Willamette Valley, I mean, including sub-AVAs, I mean, challenges, I, I mean, obviously I, I mentioned that you've got, you really kind of need water mm -hmm. down in, Southern Oregon. I mean, it's not a, it's not a deal breaker, but it almost is. Um, up north, same scenario. One could say, oh, you never need water, but at the same time, it, it's a kind of a nice thing to have, even up here, mm -hmm. even after 10 inches of rain, you know, in April. Um, because, you know, if your wine style is such that you want to have, or your, your soil profile is a very thick, happy soil that needs some tonnage in order to have a balanced vine, that's nice and balanced, but then the last month where it's really, really hot and dry and you get some east winds from the gorge, you really wish you had some little bit of water to drip on. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't know, I mean, challenges are kind of everywhere. They're kind of similar, um, specific sub-AVA challenges, or, or, you know, AVAs. I mean, you could get really d deep in the weeds. Um, the Ola Amity Hills, and I, and I kind of, I Maybe my area, maybe a, a focus is a little more in the Ola, Ola Amity area. <clears throat> um, you've got a lot of wind out there. Obviously, it kind of gets hit from the Van Duzer corridor. And so um, any kind of like pesticide, whether it's herbicide or fungicide, can be challenging because you really got to think before. Um, I think that you maybe have a little bit less of that in some other regions. Um, and... Yeah, I think, I mean, the soils, um, personally, I think sub-AVA or AVA aside, volcanic soils, jewelry-based volcanic soils, to me, they're, they're so much more uniform. They're, you know, they're down to China. Um, they're really deep, and um, they're not as undulating, obviously, um, in what, what Mother Nature gave us. And so it's, dare I say, easier to farm. Um, maybe you're dealing with some vigor issues because it's maybe a vigorous soil, but at least you kind of know what you get and it's a little more uniform. The sedimentary soils, um, which depending on the height of, of the old Amity Hills, you could be knee deep in all of it or just lap into some, some jory. Um, and same thing even in the Dundee Hills if you get a little lower and everywhere based, based on elevation, right? So that's interesting to farm and that's a lot tougher to farm. And just case in point, when you talk about maybe a client that wants to go all organic and they just love the idea of their buddy that is up in the Dundee Hills 
that does in-row cultivation and it cuts like butter and it's just great and it's just you can do it today tomorrow next week next month it doesn't matter because it's a really nice soil from a mechanized standpoint if you have some kind of cracky kind of kind of funky soils i don't know multiple different kinds helmic hazel air i don't know stewer um shaholpum, whatever um those get really soupy about now <clears throat> and so oh it's a dry day well you can't really get your tractor in can't do any in-row cultivation well then we wait too long and they get really hard and tough and now you're breaking your 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 um your sickle bar or your sensor has to be so strong that you're actually knocking plants um so that's kind of some complexities complexities that like nobody really maybe thinks about from the client standpoint um that yeah let's definitely do what your neighbor does but what your neighbor does in a different area is going to be maybe different for for you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, little challenges, but makes it interesting at the same time. When we're about uh, relationships with, with winemakers and, and with your clients, obviously there's, there's, a, there's an interesting history of relationships between vineyard managers, winemakers, we know. I'm sort of curious, you have, a, you have a lot of different people to keep happy with a lot of different expectations, yeah. a lot of different demands. Tell me about building those relationships, making, making it so both sides feel like they're, they're getting something out of it. I, that's, that's tough because um, RP is interesting because you know we are a service provider. Um, we don't own any land, we're not a winemaker. And so, you know, there's times where you could say it's simple if you're the client and you just sell a bunch of fruit to Winery X. Okay, well, I just need to make sure you're happy and do everything good for you and it may be your advocate because ultimately if wine buyer, um, you know, they, they can come and go potentially. Obviously we need to be talking with the wine buyer and involved with the wine buyer, um, but you know, if the wine buyer is wanting to do 10 different things, we need to run it by the client. Mm -hmm. um, there's other scenarios where the wine buyer and the wine owner are the same thing, right? It's the client, like an estate model and where we're in to do a service and they're, you know, they, they themselves are maybe sometimes struggling between from the vineyard side, trying to make sure something's efficient or to, um, you know, to do something with some common sense. But at the same time, there might be other avenues <laughs> that need to be done that might seem like either they might not make a lot of sense or it's going to be a costly endeavor or, or, or whatever. Um, or that's going to affect something else where, yeah, it's going to do great, but then the potential for botrytis is going to be higher. So, you know, that's, it's tough because we're like the the children in like a relationship or whatever, right? Um, maybe not the children, maybe like adults in an adult relationship. <laughs> um, the key, how we survive, because we are surviving, we, we're, we are doing well, that relationship is I think just uber communication. We are like, at least at RP, email, and um, now it's texting, which can be kind of tough at times. You're always on, but um, we have, like we want everybody to be in the know and okay you want this you're cool with this it's all good i mean it just seems kind of like uh i don't know just kind of um i don't know what the right word is um but we just need to just need to make sure that communication is like key which sounds so cliche but so many times you know um buyers and growers or even buyers and growers in the same company mm -hmm. might not be talking to each other mm -hmm. right and so as long as we're there and i think making sure that goals and um 
whether the goals are financial, qualitative, quantitative, hmm. um, are all kind of in the know with everybody, then we're pretty much golden, unless someone's just irrational, right? And you always have a few, few of those. Um, but yeah, I think we, we do quite well. And you know, every harvest is, is fun and insane at the same time, um, especially last year. Last year was mine, I've only harvested for like, I don't know, 15, 16 years, um, has been the most challenging, insane, like physically demanding. I know I didn't have COVID, but something hit me because I got tested and I was negative. Um, something hit me during harvest that was just like, and I think it was just exhaustion uh, and not just exhaustion, like just like brain exhaustion, <laughs> right? Um, but even that harvest, looking back, I mean, that was just kind of a war wound, you know, it's a nice, you know, I survived 2020. Um, and there's gonna be, hopefully not to that extent, but there's gonna be other years like that where it's gonna be, it's gonna rain six inches in mid-September, like in 2013, right? Or all of a sudden the labor is just gonna be gone. Where did it go? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, that's going on a tangent now, that's kind of exciting, but also intense um, thing about farming grapevines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And obviously taking that and explaining that to both clients, buyers, whoever's involved, um, is the key. And so, yeah, we send a lot of emails, we read a lot of emails, we write a lot of emails, and, or phone calls or texts or, you know, pigeon um, messages, anything we can do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and, and I, you know, I think, um, I think we really appreciate as a, not as RP, but like as any kind of farmer or grape grower with, you know, when a, when a winery or a winemaker is a little bit, you know, understanding or flexible of some of the things that we're, challenges that we're dealing with, um, just kind of simply communicating a really complicated task into Spanish to then to, you know, a bunch of laborers that might not have any kind of idea on what the end result and why and you're, you know, thinning this portion of the cluster because that ripens less and that makes sense for whatever reason. Um, if they can kind of, we can get some buy-in, oh, you know, man, that's kind of complicated. How about you just do this? We will fall in love with you. So it's kind of like, you know, same thing. And I hope at the same time, the winemakers fall in love with, with, with grape growers when we're able to say, instead of hell no, that doesn't make any damn sense. You know what? That's interesting. I see where you're coming from. You've got to kind of push the envelope. It's going to be more expensive. Are you cool with that? Is the client cool with that? Um, but let's try it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully we just get goo eyes. So, so yeah, so we both need to kind of play nice, right? Um, and we both have separate challenges. But I think there's a little more, um, maybe it's a little more controlled. Well, maybe I'm going to get some, some punches in the face from winemakers. But it's a little more controlled environment maybe, other than the first a couple of weeks of fermentation um, to where our life is minimal control. I mean, we're dealing with mother nature, which doesn't care about your wine style or whatever. Um, and we're dealing with labor and all the nuances and complexities and compliance and safety that supersedes a lot of your wine style. Um, and that's every day. I mean, today is different than tomorrow and then tomorrow's gonna rain. So we can't do that interesting yeast spray on the vineyard. We need to do it now, but you couldn't get a hold of me because you're selling wine somewhere. And so 
<laughs> we can't do it again because it's past flowering. I mean, it's all that stuff. So, you know, that's kind of the challenge. Um, and we really appreciate those that understand that and work with us. Yeah. On that note, do you, do you find that, especially with new clients, especially with new clients who, who, don't, who haven't had a vineyard before perhaps, do you find that the expectations are fairly reason, realistic or reasonable coming in or do you find you're doing a lot of like reframing their... their, their I think it's, it's all across the board, um, which is again, interesting because it's different and it's, it's, it makes us honor stay on our toes, but some clients can come in and they can be, you know, really down to earth and, and kind of common sense wise. And that doesn't mean that they're boring or that they, that they're, that their story is not going to be successful. Um, and then there's other clients that are wanting something that is just going to be very, very difficult to achieve. Um, and like I said, originally a while ago, it's like, it's, we rarely say no, uh, and not because we just like to just have an insane amount of stress in our lives, but it's kind of a challenge, and you know that's the way to kind of get the industry flowing. If we were just so stuck in like dogmatic ways, then the industry wouldn't grow as much, and we'd be yeah, you know, a few thousand acres of boutique wineries every year, every year, and as Oregon, you know, um, Washington surpasses us now, Texas, now Virginia, now da 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 da. And then now Oregon's just an even smaller slice of boutique high-end wineries that people outside of some metropolitan area doesn't know about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, saying yes and let's try it um, are all good things. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, but <laughs> it's, you know, again, we, we try to give some opportunities for, okay, you know, you, you're going to go that route. Well, these are the potential consequences or these are the risks you know, just, just, yeah, risk management, I don't know, yeah, so all across the board, and, and again, you know, we have so many different, it's not just one person that wants to have that because they drank some, you know, I don't know, some beautiful bottle from somewhere that now they want to have 10 acres of vines, and they don't care how much it costs, we have many different other growers, we have institutional um, um, people that want to invest in land, want to invest in grape farming that have vastly different goals and objectives than that person that wants a 10-acre vineyard that they can sit up in their jacuzzi and take a look at what they've got. And all those should have space here in Oregon, all those different kinds of clients, um, because in, in, it will make you know, the pie of Oregon bigger um, amongst all the other slices in the world. We just need to make sure that you know, everything is being grown and developed in a, in a, in a, in a sense that we can adapt, right? And I mentioned that before. Um, you know, I don't know, we've probably said no a couple times if it's disastrously, um, I don't know, if costs are disastrously low or if it's in terrain that it just really is going to, it's going to bury you from a financial standpoint, mm -hmm. right? There is, a, there is a no, maybe, a few times at RP, yeah. So. Talked about 2020 a couple of times, obviously, uh, a couple of different challenges there. I'm, I'm curious first about the, about the pandemic, uh, what effects it had on, on your work uh, and on, on, on your labor force, and the kind of adaptations you had to make over the past year, and, and 
as, as we come out of this, hopefully soon, what you see maybe changing, changes you've made that might stick around for the future? Yeah, so we were blessed as an ag entity and on the ag side of not having, not disastrous, but not having like insane amount of changes, right? We were blessed with working outside <clears throat> in a crop that by nature is primarily spaced apart, right? Literally six feet apart. Um, I think our average spacing is like seven or if you average it weighted, it's like seven and a half or whatever. So, um, but nevertheless, you know, on the office side, vast different changes. How we, which is the kind of most, the most difficult part is like how we do our safety training and how we do our kind of just group kind of, not even sometimes training, just meetings where we're having a bunch of tacos and it's just kind of a camaraderie standpoint. A lot of that has really suffered. Um, and, and it's, that's kind of been the biggest change, the de deleterious change for, for our company and probably the other farming companies. While though we've all been working, um, you know, none of us were, had to stay home on any kind of lockdown um, from the standpoint of we were blessed to have outdoor work and essential ag work, which wine, wine is essential. So there you go. Um, I feel more for the winery side, um, whatever level, you know, um, of size. We all know that the bigger boys maybe did a little bit better um, than some of, the, uh, some of the smaller routes, but still difficult for everyone on there. Um, you know, we had to, obviously there's OSHA compliance changes, um, and we, as a, a solid company, follow all that, which we can't say the same thing about other FLCs or even other, you know, farming entities. Mm -hmm. um, and so cost did go a bit up <clears throat> in general to some of these things, you know, sanitation practices, um, which kind of added kind of, kind of, poked a little bit more added salt to the wound or whatever because it's a tough year. Um, and even before, well, not before COVID, in COVID, we had a really horrible fruit set, right? Really low, horrible, maybe not the right answer, but really, really, really low fruit set. And so like as a grower who just gets the, the revenue from the grapes, they're getting hit with that, low yields, um, tough year. And then all of a sudden, now you need twice as many bathrooms because we need to maintain um, a higher sanitation protocol. So that's kind of tough. Um, you know, we, we made as much lemonade from lemons as we could here at, at the farms that we farm for. Um, and, you know, going forward, I mean, there's always a chance to be a little complacent, right? Um, and kind of, and we still have a, a, a face covering policy outside. So if you're within six feet, um, you're wearing it. And in general, all the crews, they just kind of, we just kind of wear it because it's much easier just to keep it on um, than take it off, take it on, take it off, take it, mm -hmm. take it off, take it off. And so, you know, that's something to just, on a senior management standpoint is when do we start kind of, you know, reverting back to quote unquote normal? Mm -hmm. um, that's gonna be complicated because none of it is as what the professionals say. It always seems to be different timelines. Um, you know, and so for farming wise, I don't know, I, some, I feel like some of the sanitation protocols are going to stay. Mm -hmm. I mean, so then that's just another added cost, an elevating cost to farming that a lot of owners, growers are going to have to eat. Some large, expansive, efficient vineyards can handle that. Others, it's another kind of 
poke to maybe a small complicated site that's hand labor only and now you got to add this cost and you got to do this and so it's kind of it doesn't help those kind of um, sites um, you know those those kind of inefficient sites are going to become more inefficient mm -hmm. and you know I, I can't really speak to like what's it going to do to I don't know like on the wine standpoint I, I, I don't really know I, I think we're going to have some exuberance of um, a lot of imbibing <laughs> once this is getting kind of dealt with um, you know a lot more parties with wine and, and other other spirits but I, I don't know if this is going to kind of change the game of where there's going to be more conferences like teleconferences rather than a thousands of people showing up at the symposium although I love that mm -hmm. and and we had it I don't know a week or so ago and you know it was obviously a bummer for everybody because that kind of networking the kind of Elbow rubbing and, and everything is just so important to our very personal industry. Mm. So, I, you know, I hope that we can get down to the point of where you know it's going to be flu-like, and you know nobody stopped the world for the seasonal flu, mm -hmm. but we're not there yet. Um, because I sure want to get back to rubbing elbows and slapping people on the back, and um, and yeah, mm -hmm. I miss that a lot. Like I said, it's a people industry. Most of what I've been talking about now is with humans, not with vines, right? Mm -hmm. And that's something they didn't teach you at OSU, is you're gonna be a vineyard manager deals with people and then vines <laughs> on the side. So yeah, very personal industry. And you know, we're, I'm hoping we can get back to some of that personalness with the crews, with just employees, um, and then obviously with the industry, mm -hmm. you know, compatriots. And obviously, the other the other 2020 crisis was, of course, the the fires the oh, fires at, at the harvest. Forgot about that. So tell us, you mentioned you mentioned your own personal harvest was rough. Tell, tell me about harvest for RP last year and, and how you kind of got through the that that additional crisis. Yeah, I mean, and I would say like, you know, RP as a whole. I mean, we we had a successful harvest because we not only obviously nobody had any accidents, and that's one of our first. Um, um, levels of success or not um, and we were also able to sell a lot of fruit I guess you call it a secondary market or um, to other buyers that were willing to work with the fruit um, that other buyers just didn't want to touch for whatever reason I won't get into that this is not a time for that um, but whatever happened happened and we need to do something about it and, and we could have just sat on our hands and said well it's a lot of fruit to sell and I don't know. I mean, do you have insurance, which most people didn't have crop insurance? But no, we tried very hard. Um, and the good thing about RP is we, have, we know a lot. We're a large company, so you know, we know a lot of people looking for fruit, people looking for this, production, etc. And so we were just basically putting two, two together and making that really happen in the middle of harvesting every other day, or every day, really, every day. Um, you know, we mandated K95s, KN95 masks uh, during kind of that, that peak because um, while some winers or some growers said, no, no, thank you, we stopped, there were others that said, please, 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 can you pick my grapes? Because they felt that it only was going to get worse or whatever the reasons are, they just wanted them picked now and in for whatever reason. And we wanted to continue being the company that says, yes, but. So it's like, yes, but just so you know, 
all we're going to do is pick grapes. We're going to have the minimal amount of people out there. We're not going to be foo-fooing and touching leaves and spending more time doing this and that and, and taking care of um, um, removing the net delicately. delicately. No, we're going to go in and pick the grapes and, and get out because mm -hmm. we want to minimize exposure, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so that was, you know, it's, like I said, like making lemonade again uh, from lemons. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a lot of tons that could have sat and rot. And not that, not that RP was the reason for that, but I think the industry as a whole, several very wonderful wine teams, entities, companies, um, made the change um, to continue working with that. And it might bite them. I don't know. You know, I guess it's still to be determined. Um, so we'll, we'll see, but um, yeah, that's under our belt. Right now. So, and you know, I, one last thing is I think that, you know, I have to give props to our team, everybody from the leaf pullers up to the, up to the coordinators, myself, Evan Bellinger, the coordinate harvest. Um, we had guys and girls just put their head down and just get it done. And, you know, in the time of COVID, in the time of fires, in the time of everything. Um, so, and that's, that's done not, not from us, it's from everybody. So, que pasa? It didn't, it didn't rain frogs or anything while you were out there though. There was no, no pestilence. No, no, but with ice storms, you know, <laughs> plagues, what else we got now? Yeah, I'm worried about that. It's been quite a year. Yeah. Tell me about the future for yourself and for Results Partners. What do you see as you look ahead for yourself and, and where's the company going? Yeah, so what I see for myself is a baby girl in about a month and a half or two months. That's kind of what I see <laughs> right now. It's hard not to see anything else other than that. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, I personally, this is kind of a great place to live, um, career aside, Oregon. I feel fortunate to be here um, in this area. And so, that's just, to me, seems like it's kind of the forever zone, right? Mm -hmm. um, now we have the ability to travel. We used to travel a hell of a lot. We're going to get back doing that. And we were mandated to go to Peru often because half my family's there and all of her family's there. Maybe we'll retire there. Who knows? But um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would like to just continue growing, doing what we do, which, um, you know, RP expands. I mean, we're in Walla Walla right now. <clears throat> We've obviously been in Southern Oregon for a while. I, just as I was leaving Avicella to go up north, they were starting just at like the same day or whatever, you know, I mean, kind of a, an RP south in Southern Oregon. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I, I'd like to see RP grow. Um, and I'd like to see the industry grow. I'd like to see Oregon continue oh. to move. Yeah, I know. Um, kind of forward and not kind of rest on kind of some past morals. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and then RP, you know, we just need to continue. Um, while we don't forget our foundation and what got us here, we need to continue kind of to adapt. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's like a slow adapt. We don't need to beta test everything, right? We don't need to do that. Um, but we need to kind of be uh, somewhat on the forefront. Mm -hmm. You talk about Oregon, Oregon moving forward. What, what do you see for the industry as you look ahead? What, what are the changes that are coming, uh, concerns you have, and 
Mm. And what, what does the organ wine industry look like to you in a decade? In a decade? Mm. Or even next year, you know, however, no, 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 however think, long in the future you want to look. You know, I think, there, <laughs> I think there's probably going to be some amounts of consolidation, hmm. and that seems to be inevitable. Um, I don't think that's a necessarily a negative thing. Um, but there's going to be certain, there's a, there's a subset of the size, the topography or whatever, where it's going to be really challenging um, to make it pencil out. And we talk about sustainability from a, from a mother nature standpoint. There also needs to be economic sustainability, right? So I, I see that things are going to have to change in, in, in efficiencies, in efficiencies. <laughs> or, or I mean, a, a major change would have to occur whether they, they sell or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then other challenges from the standpoint of probably, I mean, a, a labor. I, I, you know, I don't think 10 years from now we're going to be like New Zealand that has little to no labor. But um, that's, we, we, need to, we need to plan for um, that, that potential, right? To, to be highly mechanized and still attribute highly mechanized to high-end premium Pinot Noir. If, if there's anybody still, even now, today, thinking that things have to be hand massaged and hand pruned and hand cut and hand leafed and hand whatever to still make premium wine, I mean, that's becoming out of, should be coming out of favor. And if anything in the future, it's gonna become more. So, um, yeah, that's the future we need to I mean, my humble opinion is we need to still maintain what kind of makes Oregon a kind of a brand that is different than the big beast south of us or other states or other countries, um, but still be adaptive. And that might mean um, some of the things that we kind of maybe held dear with some boutique-ness um, or some ways of farming um, might have to kind of move. And so it's not like, uh, you know, um, a new thing might not, it's not always um, a complicated thing. It's not always, um, you know, a fanciful thing. It could just be simply, well, we need to get more efficient. We need to have wider spacing, you know? Um, and maybe we can do that because now we're down off of the, um, the, topo the, the, the hillsides and maybe thinner soils and now into some, some kind of benches where the thicker soils kind of warrant a few more buds per vine and thus a wider spacing. Um, and not just be dogmatic with, well, we do spacing because, you know, 10 years ago we got a 94-point line, whatever, and we want to maintain that. So I think, yeah, Oregon um, can, if we just adapt half a pace faster than the rest, but not lightning fast, I think we'll, we'll be in a good position. And yeah, who, you know, with climate change, that's going to be interesting. Like, a, you know, maybe 100 years from now we'll be able to grow awesome, you know, to not and uh, Petit Verdot, what they do in Ica. Ica, they're not going to be able to do anything but raisins then. Um, but uh, between now and 100 years from now, the whole like variability in climate, that seems to me more of an issue than just like, oh, I can't grow Pinot anymore on this south facing hillside because it's too warm. I think the ice storms, the polar vortexes, the super hot years, the, the forest fires, whatever, for whatever reason, you know. Um, not getting political, there's, feels like there's more variations. And so like, how does a monoculture that's supposed to sit in the ground for 60, 70, 80, 100 years, whatever years, handle that? Well, again, and I've said this before, getting to like that Goldilocks zone of maybe not finding 
his most insanely ripe site, not finding the site that's relatively unripe, the where you're going to not cut, but somewhere in between. Or maybe having a diverse land, having the ability to have a nice site where you have some south facing, some north facing, you've got some, some denser plantings, you've got a few different cultivars or varieties so that you can kind of, it's almost like hedging, like your, your portfolio for your retirement account, right? So if, if, if we can still obviously wave the flag of Pinot, but kind of do that in a little bit more diverse way. Um, spur pruning, you know, we're like 99.9% .9 cane prune, right, in the Willamette Valley. And there are certain reasons for that, and there are certain uh, dogmatic reasons for that. Um, maybe at some point um, that kind of moves in, which will greatly help in mechanization, but then potential, you know, we need some, some more consistent fruit set um, at the same time. And maybe weather will, will help with that, but who knows. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Ten years from now, we'll see. We'll see. We'll still be around. RP will be around, and uh, the Oregon Wineries will be around. And hopefully, we're not just um, drinking White Claw or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, questions that I have for you today? Is there anything I, I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover here today that you'd like to cover? No. Um, I think I've. I think everything's gone. I think we, I, I, you know, I needed to uh, definitely give a shout out to Earl Jones, which I did. Um, who else should I shout out to? I already shouted out to my wife, um, who was staring at me up top in the, there, the dog, a bunch of times. You're on, you're, you're part of this interview too, bud. Yeah. No, I think so. I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for your, for your time today, for your stories, for, for sharing your perspectives and, and in your story, and I will watch you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews. <laughs>